Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Hi everyone, welcome to part two of our RESP discussion with Carrie from Money in Your Tea and Court from Modern Family. If you haven't yet listened to part one, go back and give it a listen. We discuss the basics of RESPs, including accounts, contributions, grants, and investments. Today, in part two, we'll be discussing withdrawals and taxation. To start the episode, Carrie introduces us to an interesting strategy that could be helpful for a motivated teen. So Carrie, we were messaging back and forth as we were planning this show, and you came up with this very interesting scenario that I've never considered. And I think our listeners and other FI seekers will really appreciate how clever and resourceful it is. So can you talk a little bit about what you come up with? And I think it's a, a great strategy. Well, I was trying to think about... Um low-income families. I mean, I have friends who haven't been able to save money in an RESP because they're a one-parent working family and living in Toronto, and it's an expensive city, and, you know, sometimes it's enough to put that, if you have two kids, that's $5,000 a year, and that's a lot of money if you're only making, say, $40,000 before tax. So uh, if you're a teenager from a family and there is no RESP for you, I was trying to think this through, if you could do this yourself. So if you start at age 14, getting a summer job or part-time on weekends or something like that, you can probably earn $50,000 a year. $5,000. Work that out. Sorry. Yes, sorry. <laughs> 5000 That was a, a heck of a paper route. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So if you're a teen... Uh, say age 14 or so, you can probably get a part-time job earning $5,000 per year. So that would be about working one shift per week or working all summer full-time. Um, you know, maybe you're babysitting, maybe you're helping out at a retail store uh, from your parents' friends or something like that, or um, maybe you're lifeguarding at the waiting pool. And if you can save that $5,000 per year, you could potentially give that to your parents who could open up an RESP for you and deposit that $5,000 at age 14. That would be your grant for the year that you're turning 14, plus make up for one previous year that um, there was no contribution. So that would get you your 20% matching grant for $1,000 that year. And you could keep doing that the year you are 15 and 16 and 17. The last year that the government will give out the CESG is the year you turn 17. So in theory, you could put aside uh, $20,000 and get $4,000 in grants. And if your family isn't low income, you may even get the top up grants as well uh, to add to that. And you've lost out on all those years where that money could grow if you are only starting when you're in high school, but at least you get the grant, which is 20% free money that you wouldn't have got otherwise. That's huge. And I think it's an amazing way that a very motivated teen could uh, help to fund at least part of their education. And possibly if, if depending on what line of schooling they choose, it could pay for all of it um, if it mm -hmm. grows enough. 
I think that is so clever. It's a a great way for families who aren't able to contribute to maybe support their children in finding a job and helping them to open the account and uh, still coming out quite far ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and depending on your choices, as you say, if you're in college, that tends to be cheaper tuition than university. Mm -hmm. If you're living at home, it's obviously cheaper than if you have to go into residence. Uh, If you can get a couple of scholarships in there, you could probably graduate debt-free or with very little debt, uh, even with a four-year degree. That's amazing. (laughs) I love it. So thank you for thinking of that and sharing with our audience. Um, It might just help someone out there. Mm -hmm. The parents would be the ones in charge of opening the account and making the investment decisions and withdrawal decisions. So uh, they have to be on board with this plan too. You can't open it for yourself. Now, could it be if, for instance, in a household where maybe the parents aren't able or willing to help, could that same teenager go to a grandparent or an aunt and uncle and have have them open it for them? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the grandparent or aunt or uncle would need to have the child's social insurance number. And hopefully the parents are on board with this plan as well, because, you know, that could make for a rather awkward family dynamic. Yes. The only thing is that for this to work out, the child would have to know it's available, right? And if their parent doesn't have an RESP for them, they're likely not going to learn about this strategy through their parents per se, you know, maybe, maybe they can, um, maybe their parents know all about RESPs, but just don't have the income to be able to mm-hmm. open one. But more likely than not, I would guess that if a child is 14 or so and does not have an RESP set up by their parents already, it, their parents are likely not going to then tell their child, Hey, get a job and open up your own RESP, but maybe, you know, their teacher or their school counselor or a friend or, you know, someone is looking out for them, their grandparent and is able to offer this idea to them. And then they can, you know, take charge of their education at an earlier age in high school and be proactive about it at that age and not have to worry about such a high loan amount of loans uh, you know, 10 years from then after they graduate school, something like that. So I think it's a great strategy. So along those lines, Court, does this come up in discussions at school? You all have children, I do not. And uh, Chrissy and Carrie, yours are a little bit older. Does this discussion come up once they're sort of in their early teens or grade seven, grade eight years? I, I know we talked when I was in school a long time ago, all the discussion was surrounding student loans. Does the uh, RESP come up as a discussion with teachers and uh, counselors? That's a good question. I would say my kids don't always come home from high school and tell me <laughs> everything that they've talked about in school that day. Um, but I do think the schools do talk with the kids about uh, how to pay for post-secondary and what their post-secondary options are. I know the high schools are uh, trying to really push this idea that it's not university or nothing, that trade school or college or apprenticeship are all great ways of getting a post-secondary education. And so I feel like how to pay for that is probably um, a component of that discussion. Yeah, my eldest, he is in grade nine and he he generally tells me quite a bit, but he has not mentioned anything about RESP. So it could just be that he's not in the right age range where they're talking about the stuff yet. So hopefully they do bring it up at school. Yeah, I would hope so too. It may be a little bit more in grade 11 or 12. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for all of you that have kids of varying ages, how does one hear about 
this program? If your kid doesn't come home from school, what do you get as a parent to sort of let you know this is out there and it's happening? Carrie, you've kind of got the biggest age range of kids there. What's, what did you find back in the day? That's a good question. My eldest is 20, so it's a long time ago that we set this up. But uh, back before I was even married, I worked at Royal Bank in the economics department, and I remember one of my colleagues had small children, and she was talking about the RESP. So I suppose you just mainly hear about it from other parents whose kids are a little bit older than yours. And then you can look online, especially the Government of Canada, of course, has the most reliable information because it's their program. But there's lots of information from uh, bloggers like all of us and um, and others out there too. So, Cord, how did you hear about it? You've got a the youngest one of the group here. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think back. I, I'm wondering if there was a little notice or pamphlet in our little, hey, you got a new baby from the hospital, like, here's your take-home package type of thing. And it might have been in there, might have been mentioned, but I honestly can't remember. That's like, that's how bad my memory is. And that was only two years ago, like as embarrassing as that sounds. But I think it's really like a TFSA or an RRSP where it's more like you have to know about this yourself. Like you need to do your own digging and own research, whether it's word of mouth through a friend or family or coworker, or you just look online and you happen to stumble upon it. But I don't think it's like information that's readily out there, which is very unfortunate. And I think, you know, the same can be said about any many tax advantage accounts out there. A lot of it is more like DIY. You need to be on the hustle and want to do the research and learn about these things. And then you discover it and you're like, oh, wow, there's this unicorn investment out there for my kids. I should really get into this. And you might be five years you know, behind, but so be it. You know, it, I think it's just unfortunate that a lot of this is not as mainstream as it really should be. Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe this is the public service announcement that uh, if you're listening to the show and you don't have kids, maybe mention it to friends that do have kids or are thinking about kids. You know, it sounds like word of mouth is a, an important part of how this message gets spread. That uh, advertisement in the take-home package from the hospital was probably for a group RESP. Yeah, good point. Yeah, <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, and if I'd known you got a how-to book when you left the hospital. It might have changed my mind about having kids 20 years ago. <laughs> it's woefully inadequate, whatever you do. <laughs> yes, my, my sister has three-year-old twins of oh. whom I've been the proud babysitter, so I'm all fully aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twins, that's not easy. All right, well, let's pivot the episode a little bit and move on towards withdrawals court. Do you want to uh, start the section off for us? Yeah, sure. So it seems like out there, once you do learn about RESPs, it seems like whether it's blogs or articles, there's a lot of information on the maybe how to set up, how to contribute types of accounts that you can, or types of funds that you can put in the account, things like that. But I don't think there's a lot of coverage on the withdrawal side. And I think, Carrie, having you here and going through the motions at this point with your first daughter and, you know, starting now with your second kid as well, you know, I want to really dig into this. And and first question, I guess, is who takes the burden of the tax? Like how how is the tax structured when you withdraw the money? Yeah, for sure. I found this part as well really hard to find information about. And that's partly why I wrote about it on my blog last year, because uh, there isn't as much information about how to get the money out as there is how to put the money in. So if you think about it, there's like three different imaginary buckets. So there's the amount that you put in, which is 76000 if you're contributing just to get the maximum grant or um, a hard maximum of 50000 
there's the grant from the government, which is a maximum of 7,200. And then there's all, all of the rest. So that's capital gains, dividends, interest, any kind of growth that happens within that fund. So they're not like actual separate uh, buckets of money and they can all be invested in the same thing, but they're taxed differently. So when you withdraw the money, you have to state up front whether you want it to be um, from the educational assistance payments, which is a combination of grant and this income, whether it's dividends or interest or whatever, or whether you want it to be from your contribution. And your contribution, you made it in the first place with after-tax money. You don't get a tax refund on that money like you do with an RRSP contribution. So this is after-tax money. You've already been taxed on it at your marginal rate when you put it in. So that comes out tax-free. Part that is the grant and the income, the capital gains and interest and so on, gets taxed at the student's marginal rate as their income. So most students in post-secondary aren't making a whole lot of money, so they may not pay any tax on that at all or their tax bracket. I think this is what also makes the account a magical unicorn account is that it's your money funding your child's education. And when you're using it to pay for your child's education, it's now in your child's income and they are the ones quote unquote responsible for taxes. But like you said, they're likely going to be in a low tax bracket and likely pay zero or very minimal tax on this. Whereas if it was you withdrawing and it, you were tagging it up with your earned income through your employer or whoever, you know, you'd be in much likely a situation where you'd be in a higher tax bracket than your child. So I think that's really another thing important to stress is that, you know, what makes this so powerful is that when you're withdrawing it, it's very likely that you might end up paying no taxes on what you have to withdraw. That's right. So I'll just ask a, a slightly detailed question because you mentioned something interesting in that families think in terms of income and expenses for the school year, which is September to August, but taxation is actually in the calendar year, which is January to December. So can you tell us more about this? Are there pitfalls that parents need to watch for? So uh, the parents are in charge of uh, making the withdrawals from the fund or whoever has set it up. So it could be the grandparent or whoever, but most times it's the parent. Uh, so the parents say, I want to withdraw this amount of money and I want it to be from either the grant or income bucket or from the contribution bucket and, and the date or whatever. So in the first 13 weeks of school, you can only withdraw a maximum of $5,000 of that educational assistance payments, a combination of grant and income. And after that, it has to be from the contribution money. I guess the government doesn't want you to get started in university, withdraw all of their money, and then quit, and then they're out all of their money. So, uh, so they've got that $5,000 cap at the beginning. But, uh, sorry, now I've gone down this rabbit hole and I lost your <laughs> It's question. the taxation, how the taxation doesn't line up with the school year. Mm -hmm. So in that first uh, school year, in the first term, the first 13 weeks, you can only withdraw $5,000, which would then be taxed under the child's income. And any additional withdrawals are from the parent contribution, which have already had tax paid on that. So then... Um, and then after that, you're basically in school 
in the winter term, working for the summer term, and in school for the fall term. And as long as you keep up that pattern, it probably doesn't matter so much when you take things out. But you don't want to take out all of the educational assistance payments at once because then you might push them into paying more tax. You kind of have to balance it a little bit. Uh, I see what you mean. So you're saying to not necessarily take it all out in the front end because then you're uh, possibly pushing your your child into a higher tax bracket. But whereas if you spread it out into two separate calendar years, it might uh, make the tax burden a little lower. Mm -hmm. The other issue is if you're in a program that has a co-op and let's say your co-op runs from uh, September to August. So you're making a pretty good income in your co-op. So you have a smaller income for the fall term of that co-op. And then you, because you have more months of your co-op in the next calendar year where you're working from January to August. So you probably want to focus more on, on your contribution withdrawal in that year because that's already been had taxes paid on it and more of the grant and income withdrawal in the beginning half where you have lower income in that calendar year. That all makes like so much sense and just adds, you know, to the intricacies of what you need to think of. And then to add on top of that is the fact that you also want to ensure that you're utilizing all of the EAP payments because that's where your grants and your earned income and interest comes from that if you don't utilize it, that's where you may get assessed with a 20% penalty. Whereas if you don't utilize the contribution room that the subscriber contributed, that's all tax free. So it's like playing this puzzle, right? You want to utilize all the EAP payments over the course that you're in school, but you want to do it in the wisest fashion for tax purposes year over year. Yeah, that's right. Now, can we can we just uh, take a step mm -hmm. back and explain the different types of payments and what the acronyms mean? Thank you for doing that. Sure. <laughs> 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 so there's the contribution that you put in as the parent, and then the education assistance payment is a combination of the grant and the income. And the income is... Uh, interest, dividends, capital gains, any way that that money has grown from, I mean, you know exactly how much you put in, which would be, say, 36000 just trying to maximize the grant, or 50000 if you're going right to the end. And you know exactly how much the government has put in as a grant, 7200 if you've maximized all of that. So everything above that is income, whatever that may be. And that combined together, the grant and the income, is the education assistance payment. Okay, so the EAP side is the education assistance payment. That makes up the grants and any earned income that you have from within the account um, as your investments grow, right? And then so the PSE side, that's the post-secondary education payments, right? And so that's essentially what you, the subscriber, are contributing year over year into the accounts, whether it's the 36000 to get the max match uh, grants from the government to get the max 7200 or the full 50000 but that number whether it's the 36 or 50 or whatever it is you choose that's what we mean by pse or post secondary education payments right so those are your contributions right that's right i should add one other thing when you're withdrawing and you withdraw from the educational assistance payments is that 
it withdraws proportional to the current balance in each category. So if you had, say, 5,000 left in your grant and 15,000 left in your income, and then you're withdrawing $1,000, it would take a quarter of that out of the grant and three quarters of that from the income. You can't say, I want to take out all of the grant and leave the income behind. It comes out proportional together, those two. Mm. And then the PSE or the contribution payment uh, comes out separately. Okay. And so the PSE that you choose to take out, it's not tethered at all to the EAP. You can take out any amount. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So what, I guess it's your money, so they don't care. You could take out all of it if you want to just... Could you do that? <laughs> if you yeah, could. and in fact, the PSE is your money, so it can come back to you yourself as the parent, or you can say, bank, I would like you to give this money into my child's account. Mm. The EAP has to go into the child's account. So one of my friends gets the PSE paid out to her, and she makes her son come home for dinner every Sunday night <laughs> and gives him his allowance for the week. And that way she's guaranteed to see him. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's cute. And now just to clarify further, the PSE, does that, yes, it's your money. Do you still have to prove that you're using that for post-secondary expenses or can you do anything you want with the PSE money? I'm pretty sure you can do anything you want. So if you're behind on your RSP contributions, in theory, you could say, I'm going to keep the PSE payments for myself and top up my RRSP because now I'm 55 and I need to do something to save for my own retirement. Got it. And okay. you can have all the rest. Okay. So my head's spinning a little bit here. So I'm going <laughs> to, uh, no, no, it's really good. But uh, I'm on the show for a reason because I don't know anything. So I'm going to walk this back just a little bit, just so I know, make sure I have it clear in my mind, because we talked about some acronyms there that I'm not familiar with. So I'm thinking of this in a two bucket situation where one bucket is all the money that I've physically put into the account. And the other bucket is a combination of the government grant and any capital gains, dividends, or interest that were earned in that account. And I just want to clarify that when you withdraw, if you take it out of the bucket that was not after-tax money, which is the gains, that you said comes out as a proportion between the government grant and the gains. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And then the other bucket, which is the um, PSE or your contribution, like uh, Chris, you just mentioned, you said that you can do whatever you want with it. So, okay, mm -hmm. good. I got that straight. <laughs> yep, you got okay. it. <laughs> so this leads me into the question of what that withdrawal process looks like. And I get that there's some tax implications and you're going to want to sort of manage that. And it's interesting because we don't really talk about RSP um, meltdown strategies, but here you are with a child having to sort of do a meltdown strategy for this RESP. So what does that withdrawal process look like for you? And what do you choose to use those withdrawal funds for? Are there specific things that you have to allocate them to? As far as the mechanics of drawing it down, I just email our banker and say, I want to take out this amount of money between these two buckets and also where I want that to come from. So um, which GIC it's coming from or what other, uh, if it was still in mutual funds or ETFs or stocks or whatever, whatever you want to sell in order to take that out. If it's in a, a DIY account, then you probably have to sell that yourself into cash before taking it out. I'm not quite sure because that's not how my eldest's account is set up yet. 
As far as what qualifies for expenses, basically anything that's related to the cost of school. So tuition, obviously, books, uh, rent or residence costs, meal plans, uh, even any other eating out. So, you know, you stop at Starbucks on the way to class, public transit or gas if you're driving your car and your computer or any other tech or supplies for class. What if your um, child lives like at that. home and you charge some rent? with that count? <laughs> That's a good question, and I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, but they also don't ask for receipts or any proof of what you're spending that on. So it's not like you have to keep track of every receipt from Starbucks, because who does that? <laughs> and unless you're spending more than um, 20000 a year of your uh, RESP, then they just trust that you're using it for school costs. Would furniture costs as well, like to furnish your room or your apartment or whatever it is, if you're not living at home, would that count as something? Do you know? Yeah, I think it probably would. Again, they don't ask for receipts. So if you just say, I need $10,000 this term, then they just transfer you $10,000. You do have to provide proof that you are in post-secondary education every year in order to keep getting those or withdrawals. This is just screaming Canada to me as a dual citizen. Like, I feel like this is so honor system and it would just, I feel like this would not fly in the States, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we just trust you. If you're like most of us, getting life insurance is something you know you should do, but you never seem to get around to it. You're right, Chrissy. Now there's a better way to buy life insurance. It's called Policy Me, and I think our listeners will love it. More than 37,000 Canadians have already used PolicyMe for their life insurance quotes. Yeah, I've actually tried it myself. And in less than 10 minutes, I received a selection of quotes from reputable, established insurers. It's fast, free, easy to use, and no pressure. Sounds great. I heard PolicyMe uses intelligent technology and personalized advice that recommends what you need, but not a penny more. You could save hundreds of dollars per year on your policy as top insurers compete for your business. Protect your family. Get your personalized quote today at explorifycanada.ca forward slash policy me. It sounds like it's relatively easy that you're not having to track everything, but it also sounds really complicated from a perspective of how do I know how much out of each bucket, what taxes are going to be involved, especially if my child come uh, university age has some sort of form of part-time income. Is there some sort of guide out there for parents, Carrie? Is there somewhere that people can go that kind of gives them some coaching on how to break this down and withdraw successfully? I wish it were that easy, actually. Um, yeah, there's really not as much information on withdrawals out there as uh, I would have liked to see when my uh, eldest child was going into university. Um, I think basically talking to uh, your bank or whatever financial institution you're at uh, to get a little bit of advice on the process of withdrawing and uh, and just researching online and looking at bloggers uh, and see what they've written. Or a lot of times there'll be articles in the paper around the beginning of going back to school time. Uh, Money Sense has regular articles on RESP withdrawals, things like that. So I read a book a few years ago, and it's called the RESP book uh, by someone named Mike Holman. And I remember it being really easy to read, and it was excellent. But again, it was quite light on the withdrawal stuff, because that was what I was most curious 
in because that is where the info is the most lacking. So it, while it was a good book, I agree with you, Carrie, there's a, a lack of info about withdrawals because it's quite complex and it's something that all of us need more <laughs> information for. Maybe you can write more about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll try. I, I think, and part of it is trying to look ahead too. So if you're looking at your child's uh, education plan, do they have a co-op term coming up and when is that? And trying to make your EAP withdrawals on years that their income will be lighter and the PSE, the contribution withdrawals on, on years that their income uh, will be higher, but also managing to use up all of that EAP before they graduate. Yeah. So I wonder, it sounds almost like you need a plan as similar to when you're retiring to maximize uh, or, or minimize your taxes, I guess, to plan it out, to, to see if you can structure it so that you're timing things properly to coincide with your child earning income and any other income they might receive. At the margin, maybe it doesn't make any difference because if they're in the lowest tax bracket and they pay the lowest tax rate on that $1,000 this year instead of next year or last year, they're still in the same tax bracket for that. True. Probably not getting a lot of kids going up into the next tax bracket. And if they are, that's a good problem to have because <laughs> it means they're, they have really good income. True. That's true. So we'll move on to the next question. Can you tell us, is there a way to structure your withdrawals so that the EAP gets withdrawn first and then the PSE? And is, is there any sort of tactic that um, parents can follow to, to maximize how much they can get out that's taxable under the child's name and then maybe leave the PSE for later? Yeah, as a parent, you decide what gets withdrawn when. So you can only withdraw... 5,000 of the EAP within the first 13 weeks. But after that point, you can withdraw all the EAP until it's used up and then focus on the PSE if that's your strategy. Uh, okay. So so you could do that. The government's not going to say, hang on, you got to take some PSE at the same time. You, you are allowed to take just EAP after the first 13 weeks. There's There's no limit. You can just take EAP only. Yes, if that's what you'd like to do. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So has that $5,000 limit on the EAP within the first th 13 weeks, has that gotten in the way of you trying to structure your withdrawal strategy? Like, are you looking over a four-year time horizon when you're starting this out? Or are you just looking year over year and you're saying, okay, this first year I can do 5,000 within 13 weeks using the EAP and the grants. And then after that, then we're kind of going to come up with the next plan of action or kind of how can you guide us through like the first year, what your thoughts were knowing that you had that 5,000 limit on the EAP within the first 13 weeks? Did you just say, okay, we'll just use 5,000 from the EAP and the rest will come from our contributions, meaning the PSE for the year? Or did you do what you needed to do within the first 13 weeks, reaching that 5,000 limit on the EAP and then go after the EAP again after those, that 13-week time frame has, uh, you know, ex expired. Yeah, I suppose we probably would have taken out a little bit more than $5,000 for EAP in the fall of first year if we could have. She's living at home, so she doesn't have any residence or rent expense, but there's still tuition, which is not cheap, and textbooks are expensive, and 
uh, food and things like that and public transit. So it did come out to more than $5,000 for the fall term. And uh, if I'm remembering, she actually had to pay her winter tuition before the end of the fall. So um, it probably had to cover the winter tuition as well with that money. So, so yeah, it did ch change what we would have liked to do otherwise, but I mean, it's not terribly over. Right. So once you get over that 13 week initiation, then you have the complete freedom to decide how you want to withdraw and you can take hundred percent EAP out for the next tuition. If it's due after 13 weeks or year two or year three, however you want to do it, depending on what makes sense from a tax perspective with your child, if they're working that year or not, you kind of have to meld the two. Like, I feel like in theory, you would just say, okay, my EAP is X. I'm going to divide it by four and use that for all four years, a fourth, a fourth, a fourth, a fourth. But of course, then it depends on the income tax level that your child is in. And if they're working any of those years, if you just take a fourth of the EAP plus their income, it may bump them up to a higher tax bracket. So you kind of have to meld the two of maximizing the EAP payments to ensure that you get all the grants and you get all the income and not get hit with that 20% penalty. Whereas on the PSEs and your contributions, you wouldn't, you can just take that out tax-free and clear since it was tax-free money. But then you also need to just be cognizant of any earned income that your children are getting over the years that you're withdrawing. So that way, that's I, it seems like that's the best way to withdraw, but it's obviously hard to think of that in year one when you don't know what their income is going to be in year two, three, or four, if they're going to be working. So it seems like there's no real way to structure it in the first year other than maximizing the EAP payments as best you can and then taking it year by year. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you can anticipate anything, like if you know there's um, a co-op term coming up, you can try and plan around that. But otherwise, you're just trying to do the best you can. Um, but the, keep in mind also that the income still is uh, growing during the period where they're in school, because hopefully you're still earning interest and dividends and uh, capital gains over this period. Right. And I think we all need to take a step back and just realize what a good situation this is, right? Like trying to figure out how oh, to sure. spend money, right? Like how to, you know, minimize taxes and make sure our kids end up with the least amount of loans as possible. So I think it all just wraps up, you know, just the power of this account. And by dealing with the withdrawals and trying to figure out, you know, how to withdraw it the most tax efficient way, it puts you in a power, you know, a place of privilege, just that you're able to even think about this, right? And I think a big takeaway that we haven't really talked about is like your kid's should be part of these conversations, right? To understand like why they have X amount of loans versus what it could have been if you didn't have an RESP in place, what it would have looked like for them. And then you can talk to them about compound interest. And if they had $50,000 in loans instead of five, how many years that would take for them to pay that off. And if they invest that instead, they can reach five in 10 years instead of 20 or, you know, whatever it may be. And I think using the RESP as a building block along the FI journey with your kids, even when they're young too, not just while you're withdrawing, I think it's just a really powerful account and you can use money lessons with your kid with it while the account's growing. And we keep saying uh, four years, four years, four years, but it's not with restricted to four years. So uh, if your child is planning on doing postgraduate studies or if they're starting off in a college program and then transitioning into a university program after that or vice versa, or maybe taking a couple years off and then going back to do a master's program or whatever, you can still use your RESP for all of that. Right, right. Very true. 
Well, I don't think I could wrap that up any better than Court just did and, uh, <laughs> and Carrie as well. It does sound to me like the withdrawal portion of this uh, is it can be complicated and is going to be absolutely one of those personal finance decisions. And I think you made a great comment there about sitting down with your university's child and having this discussion as a family and perhaps if you need to with a financial coach or a fee-for-service advisor. We should probably add that, you know, we've gotten really deep into the weeds of trying to maximize your contribution and maximize your grant and maximize your tax favorable withdrawals. But really, you're just trying to do better than nothing. So uh, if it is all sounding really complicated, like, don't let that stop you from taking out an RESP. So go into your bank. If, if you don't want to be a DIY investor, go into your bank and they'll give you advice and Yes, you pay for that advice in terms of mutual fund higher fees, but it's better to be doing that than doing nothing at all. So get in there and open an account and uh, and just get started. And it's better to have enough down the road or have as much as you can manage than to have nothing at all. That is a great thing that you mentioned there, Carrie, because I, I think a lot of times we hyper-optimize things in the FI community and we sometimes lose sight of what's really important. And you're right. It's important to just have do better than doing nothing. You know, <laughs> having mm-hmm. some some money is a great move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And our yeah. decision to move into GICs in the high school years, you know, sure we lost out on some capital gains during those years, but we locked in the gains that we had, and I knew that when the stock markets went down, if they went down, and, and they have this year, mm-hmm. that uh, we wouldn't lose what we had built up. Because, you know, if you get to age 65 or whatever your ideal uh, retirement age is, and there's a market crash, you can always work a bit longer or work part-time or you know, put off buying a new car for a couple of years or something like that. But you can't really tell your 18 year old, oh, sorry, honey, you can't go to university or college for another five years until the stock market recovers. Mm-hmm. It's important to recognize like that point of enough, you know, like we have enough for four years of education, if that's what you think your child's going to do or whatever it may be, you know, you want to have enough for six years of education if that's, you know, what you want to rationalize. But I I agree, Carrie, once you've reached that point where your funds have grown and you feel comfortable with that number, of course, tuition can change year over year, you know, there could be unforeseen expenses, but I think it's that psychological balance of figuring out, do I want to continue to be aggressive and see my portfolio potentially grow another 10% over the next five, 10 years, you know, however long it may be, or do I want to be content knowing, okay, this is where basically here, child, here is what you are going to have. Choose wisely, do what you want with this money. You know, I think it's that emotional psychological balance that parents and kids, you know, again, talk about it with your kids, you know, and figure out if they're comfortable with that, I think you ultimately have the say as a parent, but um, just another talking point that you can have with your children is, you know, explaining why you're doing things this way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm super aggressive, but I think both of you are sharing very wise advice. You have to go with your gut and what you're most comfortable with. And of course, what your child is, is also agreeable to because that is their education money. So uh, thank you for mentioning all of that. Those are all very important points that we need to share with our listeners. I think that 
we covered everything in a lot of detail and I would love it if um, our listeners, if they have any extra info could chime in, whether it's on our Facebook page or in our comments in the show notes, we would love to learn more. Um, we're, we're all just doing our best here based on the information we have. But if anyone knows anything extra that we haven't covered, please do uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, it'd be great if we can get some feedback from our listeners because I know there'll be questions out there and, and I'll probably have some of my own because I do have some young sibling or I guess my, my sibling has young children that uh, I should contribute to as well. And wow, this has been a marathon recording session and I cannot thank mm-hmm. Court for all the work that uh, she did before this episode coming up with a lot of this questions and content and for Carrie coming on the show and allowing us to uh, rapid fire questions at her and for the time that you both committed today for Explorify Canada. I know all our listeners are really going to appreciate this. So Carrie, thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, give us a quick plug where our listeners can find you. You can find my blog, moneyinyourtea.com, and uh, I write about all kinds of uh, investments and uh, spending and savings, and uh, lately quite a bit about uh, how COVID-19 is affecting family finances. Fantastic, and you're probably on some social media as well. They can probably find you on Twitter. I, I think I see you on there as well. Yeah, that's right. And Court, again, many thanks, and give us a little plug of where our listeners can find you. Yeah, sure thing. I'm happy to be on. Um, uh, we blog over at modernfamily.com. So it's a spin on the TV show Modern Family, but FI in there. And since we reached FI for our family of three, um, that's primarily the best way to find us. I'm also on Instagram at Modern Family, but I've done two social media detoxes this year so far for two months, and I am slowly creeping away uh, from social media. So best way for sure to find us is on our blog. Uh, feel free to reach out. We have a contact set or comment on one of our blog posts, uh, you know, you can find us there. And of course, Court was the previous guest on two other episodes, and I will include the links in the show notes. Yeah, thanks. Right on, Chrissy. Well, this is a fantastic episode, and we will catch you listeners on the next episode of Explore FI Canada. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. One, leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Two, tell your friends and family about us. Three, use our referral links at exploreficanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at exploreficanada.ca. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefi.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet.